So we're back onto our Bible stories this morning, and today we're going to be having a look at the story of Jesus on trial. We'll have a look at it from Luke's Gospel, although you can find it in the other Gospels as well. Last week we had a look at the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw how Jesus fought and won the greatest battle ever. He came through completely victoriously, and yet his disciples failed completely, miserably. And we are so often like his disciples. He just said, just keep watch with me, with me for one hour, and they fell asleep over and over again. We ended with Jesus heading off to meet uh, with Judas, the disciple who had committed to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. We're not going to specifically look at that story. So next we see Judas kissing Jesus to identify him to the Roman God at night. People often say, well, Jesus was so popular, why would Judas have to kiss him? Well, there are a couple very good explanations. Number one, it's dark. There aren't street lights and all the rest of it. Number two, <clears throat> there was no internet or newspapers or TV where Jesus' face would have been splashed all over Palestine or Judea or wherever, you know, Galilee. So um, he wouldn't have been known or visibly recognizable by everybody around there. Uh, so in order to identify him to the Roman God that had been raised up, Judas went and kissed him on the cheek. And we know that story. Uh, we then see him being led off by the Roman God to the high priest's house. And that's where we're going to pick it up now. And we also read in between that deeply disturbing story of Peter denying Peter, uh, Jesus three times in spite of the fact that he said, I'll never, everybody else can, I'll never. And God willing, we'll look at that story next week. But let's pick it up now in Luke chapter 22. I'm reading from verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God, meaning the Messiah? He replied, you are right in saying, I am. There comes that word again. Before Moses was, I am. The name that God revealed himself in the desert that day. Then they said, why do we need more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly arose and led him off to Pilate. We'll talk a little bit more about Pilate just now. They began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is, as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. 
Now, they're specifically working in terms of geography. So in that area, he was doing it. And now, Pilate, under your jurisdiction in your area, they're doing it. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Herod was in charge of Galilee. Herod was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Because for a long time he had been wanting to see him from what he had heard about him. He hoped to see him perform some miracles. He applied him with many questions. Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Now, we're not exactly sure why they were enemies. One of the thoughts is that we read in Luke 13 that there was a whole group of Galileans that were slaughtered in, in Jerusalem. So the Galileans would have been under Herod's jurisdiction, and Pilate had slaughtered them in his spot. So there might have been that that had caused the enmity between them. There was also a story somewhere in antiquity that uh, Herod would not allow his face to be put onto coins because he knew how badly that affected the Jews because they didn't want any images, whereas Pilate didn't mind. So people think that maybe that's why they were enemies. But anyway, they became friends on this day. Pilate called together the chief priests, the teachers, the rulers of the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So they wanted a murderer rather than Jesus. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate again appealed to them, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What is this crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for, sorry, he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Ouch. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, we ask, as we always do, that your spirit would enlighten our hearts, illumine us to your truth. 
Thank you for your word which comes to us this morning. Thank you that we are able to hear it. And I pray that you'd help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we actually need to read all the gospel accounts of Christ's trial to get a complete picture of what really transpired here. So I might be mentioning some things today that I pulled from other gospels, and I really encourage you to go and read the other gospels. But just staying true to doing one story at a time, we're just going to kind of summarize this story of Jesus on trial. We pick up our story where Jesus has been dragged into the house of the high priest, Caiaphas, and his father-in-law, Annas. Annas now was the previous high priest. Between Annas and Caiaphas, they had conspired against Jesus and sent out the order for his arrest under the cloak of darkness in the Garden of Gethsemane. They arrested him at night, probably, because a lot of the crowd that would have known him would have been against this arrest. So they did it secretly. They whip him away under the guise of soldiers with clubs and swords, and he's brought before Annas and Caiaphas at the palace of the high priests. Historians have indicated that Annas was one of the most powerful Jews in the first century. He reigned as high priest from about 6 AD to 15 AD. Now we know that when one was elected as high priest to the office of high priest, it was an appointment for life. So something must have happened that Annas was removed from his post, and it would have been by the Roman authorities, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, instituted as high priest. However, the people at the time still valued Annas and looked to him as the high priest of authority. Interesting. <clears throat> Here we have Caiaphas and and Annas, the two high priests, although it was only Caiaphas with Annas being the previous one. Before them, standing the actual great high priest, Jesus. Before these high priests stood the supreme high priest. The high priest whose order was not that of the Levitical line. He didn't descend from Aaron and the Levites and so get his title as high priest. He was from the order of Melchizedek, the heavenly high priest, who in this ironic moment in history is standing in front of these judges who were just earthly high priests. We know that the earthly high priest on the annual day of atonement would offer a lamb without blemish to be sacrificed and that blood would be sprinkled on the altar which was a symbol of temporary atonement. But here before Annas and Caiaphas stood the lamb without blemish. He didn't come to offer an animal to be sacrificed. He was the lamb to be slain for the atonement of his people's sin. So they begin to interrogate Jesus. Verse 67, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, tell us. And he says, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. In other words, I've been authenticated by the Father by miracle after miracle after miracle. What more will it take before you believe that I am the Messiah? 
Maybe we pause and ask ourselves that question today. What will it take for you to believe here? What will it take for you watching online today if you don't already believe? See, if Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah of God, this is the most important truth which has ever been revealed in human history. It changes everything. There is no discovery that human beings can ever make that can compare with coming to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. We've discovered lots of exciting things, haven't we? Antibiotics and, and electricity, although we're busy rediscovering electricity. <laughs> what the world's forgotten long ago, we, we're still busy with. <laughs> I mean, there's so many wonderful things, human inventions, perhaps even the chairs that you're sitting on, the clothes that you drive and the cars that you have. But I want to say this again. There is nothing that has ever been discovered or uncovered in human history, and there will be nothing that can ever be uncovered and discovered more important than this single truth. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It changes everything. Jesus knew these men who were his judges. He knew that they would not believe. And so he goes on to say in verse 69, from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. What he's saying is that you want the death penalty against me, and as soon as I'm executed, I ascend to the right hand of, the, of God, which is the seat of cosmic authority. And in a very short time, you, Annas and Caiaphas, will stand before me as I'm standing before you you but this time you will be standing to be judged eternally when they heard this they were furious and when Jesus confirmed he is the son of God the Messiah they were adamant no further proof was needed to put him to death never mind the fact that they had violated every single rule set down by the Jewish courts. And I could speak for an hour on that. For example, it was prohibited to have trials at night and on feast days. This trial was illegal by their standards. It was dishonest. It was rigged to produce a quick condemnation. It never called for any witnesses. It illegally used Jesus' words against him. There was no neutrality. Jesus' prosecutors were his judges, and his judges prosecuted him. It was against everything that, 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 that made up a trial in those days. So they take Jesus off to this Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman in charge in order to secure the death penalty. The Romans, when they subjugated foreign nations, allowed the locals quite a large degree of self-rule. They allowed the people to practice their preferred religions, and they only had a few restrictions. One of them being was that no local government uh, could, could execute or could uh, issue a death warrant for anyone without approval uh, from Rome. So the hands of the Jewish leaders in this case were tied. And it was necessary for them to go to the Roman Pontius Pilate to ask him to offer the death penalty. 
Pilate was the governor. He was the procurator. He was the, the leader in that area of the Roman province of Judea at this stage under the emperor Tiberius. He wasn't the emperor, and he wasn't a member of the Senate of Rome, but he was an official, a ranking official, happened to be assigned to one of the most unpopular posts as governor or procurator over this rebellious nation of defeated and vanquished Jews. So they come to him with a whole bunch of blatant lies. They said Jesus was subverting the nation, misleading the nation by opposing payment of taxes to Caesar and claiming to be a king. This was just not true. This was a blatant lie. Jesus had made it very clear to his followers to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And the fact that Jesus was misleading or subverting the nation by claiming to be a king was just not true. Jesus himself called his disciples to himself with a simple command, follow me. He didn't walk around and say, I'm the boss, I'm your king, I'm in charge. I'm he didn't do any of that. He just said, follow me. And now the authorities before Pilate are, mis are saying that he's misleading or subverting the state. Let me tell you something. If you follow Jesus, this can never be misleading. You can never ever sin if everything you ever do in your life is to follow Jesus. Every single time I sin, it's because I have not followed him. Where he leads us, we don't want to go. We sin because we don't want to follow Jesus. Our culture does not want to follow Jesus. Our schools do not want to follow Jesus. Our government does not want to follow Jesus. Every time we don't want to follow Jesus, we're going down a path of no return. And they're saying, he's misleading the people. He's subverting the nation. Quite the opposite. Now, obviously, Pilate, who doesn't want to undermine his emperor, has to investigate. He doesn't want a riot coming out under his domain. This is a serious accusation, a serious crime. So Pilate subjects him to a rigorous integration. Just a bit of background on Pilate. There was a philosopher, theologian of Hellenistic Judaism, a, named, a man named Philo. A, na a man named Philo. A name man Philo. <laughs> okay. Bruce, his name was Philo. He wrote a letter describing Pontius Pilate. In the letter he said this. Pilate was inflexible, obstinate, cruel, and unjust. Pilate would frequently condemn people without even a hearing. He was notorious for his cruelty. And that's why ultimately he was removed from his office by Rome, returning to Rome. And history reveals that he committed suicide because of his abysmal failure as a ruler. And it was based upon how cruel he was. In the ancient world, it was understood that the ruler of a vicinity had providential responsibility as a representative of the gods. And so when he ruled, he was ruling what the gods said. 
He didn't just speak as a private individual. He was considered a person whose dictates and decisions were considered to be judgments of the gods. Okay, that's Pilate. Let's see now. This guy who's, who history reveals as inherently cruel, whose judgments are seen as coming from the gods, this really wicked, skewed individual, after examining Jesus, says, I find no basis for a charge against him. And that seem a little bit strange. The worst of characters. And yet, he comes up with an honest judgment. No surprise, because in Jesus, there weren't any faults. I mean, this is the lamb without blemish. This is the only sinless person ever to walk upon this planet. So it's no surprise he could find no fault in him. That's why when Pilate discovers Jesus is from Galilee, he's thrilled. His jurisdiction didn't go that far. That was the province of Herod Agrippa. This was the Herod who had had John the Baptist's head lopped off. Herod had come down from Galilee for the Passover. So there he was, busy in Jerusalem, coming to worship God. And Pilate is so excited because he can get rid of Jesus. And it now becomes Herod's problem to make the judgment. We read that Herod was very glad to see Jesus. He had heard about all the miracles. He was really hoping to see something. Hey, Jesus, come turn this water into wine. You know? Hey, Jesus, take a walk across the sea for me. Hey, Jesus, can you bring, some, bring a blind person in? Bring somebody without limbs. Bring a dead person in here. Jesus is here. He wanted to see something. And the Bible said Jesus remained silent. He wasn't going to get put on show. Didn't run out of his mouth. So Herod, having run out of questions, had his soldiers mock Jesus, ridicule him, dress him in clothing of royalty, and he sends him back to Pilate. Again, Pilate tells Jesus' accusers that he can find nothing deserving of death. And the fact that Herod sent him back means that Herod didn't find any reason to have him put to death. He does not de deserve to die. Pilate again says, I'll have him flogged, I'll have him punished, and, and I'll let him go. With one voice, verse 18 says, uh, let's just talk about that quickly. Deuteronomy 19.15. Amazing how Jesus perfectly filled, fulfilled everything. One witness was not enough to convict a man. So, two witnesses. He went to both Pilate and he went to Herod. Herod, and what happened? Both of them found him not guilty. Amazing, huh? Just how it all fits together. One voice they cried out, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown, as we read, into prison for insurrection and murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them. They kept on shouting, crucify him, crucify him. With greater and greater urgency, they screamed for the blood of Jesus. Pilate wanted to free him. He found no fault in him. It's amazing that the pagan ruler should know of Christ's innocence, but the religious folks wanted his blood. Three times he tried to let Jesus go, even Herod finding no, no fault. 
but they continued to scream for his blood. The crowds demanded another man, a man greatly at fault, an insurrectionist, a murderer named Barabbas. Barabbas was probably the man that was destined for the middle cross. You know, on the crucifixion, Jesus hung in the middle and he had one on his right and his left. I suspect that middle cross was actually destined for Barabbas. They wouldn't have left Barabbas languishing in jail for, for, uh, for months and months. This insurrection would have just taken place very recently and he would have been put to death at the next crucifixion. Pilate offers them a trade, being his custom to release somebody at that time of year condemned to death. If you didn't know this, Barabbas, his name means son of the father. Isn't that tragic? By any time in the scripture you see Bar, it means son of, Abba means father. So here they demanded the release of the son of the father, but the real son of the father they were going to put to death. This mob of conspirators, the high priests, the Pharisees, the religious zealots, all screaming for the blood of Jesus. Amazing Passover day, isn't it? The Jews are gathered there that day to honor God with a Passover meal. This was the high point of worship for them. They were there to bring their sacrifices before God, to show their obedience to God. They were there to eat the commemorative meal that remembered the deliverance by God, uh, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, bringing them out of Egypt. Yeah, they are remembering his goodness while at the same time screaming for the death of their deliverer, the true Son of God. Pilate eventually collapses under the threat of a riot. He would have been reported to Rome and lost his job. As it turns out, he lost his job anyway. And even though over and over again he declares the innocence of Jesus, he releases Barabbas. He has Jesus scourged and hands him over to be crucified. That scourging was something nobody wanted to go through. It was intended to shorten the time of the person's death on the cross. It would have been a leather whip made out of like a cat of nine tails, thongs, leather tentacles, and in each tentacle was a bit of bone or metal, and they would whip that person front and back until all the flesh, all the external flesh would have been ripped off the person's body, which is why the scripture says Jesus was not recognizable as a man. All that would be left would be meat and bones underneath. Many people didn't make it to the crucifixion. Jesus was so weak they had to get Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross, remember, because he, he, he didn't have the strength to do it. So difficult to do justice to the trial of Jesus in these short moments. But I hope I've given you a brief overview. But what can we learn from this? The first thought that I had was that God's purposes will always prevail. You see, this was not a miscarriage of justice. The bigger story here is the overarching purpose of God. Isaiah 53.10 says it was his will to crush him. To make him suffer. This was part of God's plan. 
When Jesus was placed on trial, you see, he came under the condemnation of the law of God. This gets to the heart of why Jesus came into this world. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem, buy back, purchase those under law, so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. Hallelujah. It's amazing. We are now Barabbas. The ones who should have been tried. The son of the father. We are now sons of the father. The guilty ones. We have now been set free. By what the true son did for us. So the trial and subsequent crucifixion was not a mistake. It was God's only way to save sinners. The point is this. God's purposes will prevail. I know there's nothing that we will ever go through to even vaguely compare to this. But I know that sometimes when it all looks wrong. Even though it looks wrong. God's purposes will prevail. Be encouraged. Psalm 37 verse 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Christ's steps were ordered to his trial. Gethsemane, his trial, his crucifixion. And your steps too can be ordered by the Lord. So, God's purposes prevail. Secondly, judgment is coming, and this is where it affects us all. The Bible tells us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And Hebrews 9 reminds us as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So here we are in church today, considering his claims, making decisions about him every day. Will we obey him? Will we trust him? Will we follow him? Remember while you are making your decision about Jesus, the day will come when Jesus will make his decision about you. Everyone will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Everyone will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. Friends, this is a trial for all seasons, for all eternity if you like. And unless we are hidden in Christ, hidden in what he has done for us, the fact that he stood trial in our place, unless we are hidden in him, we are going to be in for a hard ride. Judgment is coming on all who reject him. So often people say to me, but what about the people who haven't heard? And I can't answer that. I can give you some sort of weak theological answer if you want. But my question to you rather is, have you heard? Have you heard? 
That you've, have you heard that Jesus alone is the way to the Father? No one comes to the Father except by him. Do you know that unless you accept him as your Savior, unless you receive him into your heart, you can never be a son of God? Do you know that your church cannot save you? Your pastor cannot save you? Do you know that people will not be standing with you on the day of judgment? It's you standing before him one day. And judgment is coming upon all who reject him. I'm so grateful that I know I'm hidden in Christ. I'm so grateful I know that even though I'm, I fail all the time and I fall all the time and I stink most of the time in what I think and do and say that God has taken his righteousness and clothed me with his own righteousness. My Bible says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we become the righteousness of God. So don't worry about the people who haven't heard. Don't worry about those who don't know. I don't know about that. But I do know about those who have heard and have rejected him. Judgment will come upon them. The last little thought this morning. I want to teach you a theological word. It's propitiation. Say it with me. Propitiation. <laughs> Sounds like we had a little bit too much to drink. <laughs> the word propitiate means to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Propitiate means to turn away God's wrath. It means to offer a sacrifice that appeases God's just judgment and righteous anger against us and sin. So Jesus is not the propitiator, he's the propitiation. He's the ultimate sacrifice for us. He is what satisfies the justice of God. See, when Jesus was condemned at that trial, he stood in our place. 1 John 2.2 says, he is the propitiation, is the word. The atoning sacrifice for our sins. The holy son of God stood in the place of sinners under the law of God, and endured its condemnation. See, all that God could ever charge against his people was charged against Jesus. He took our place under the law. The wages of sin is death, and he bore that penalty of the law for our sins. At that trial, Jesus was declared guilty. So that you should be declared, where are we, sorry, you should be declared righteous. Jesus was charged under the law so that all the charges against you would be dropped. Jesus, the righteous one, condemned so that you, me, sinners, would be justified. There was a hymn we used to sing and I think the chorus bit went something like this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But he washed it. White as snow. What joy to know that he is our propitiation. Summarize quickly. God's purposes will prevail. The cross was not a mistake. 
that trial that Jesus led Jesus to the cross was part of God's plan so that we don't have to stand trial one day. Isn't that amazing? We don't have to stand trial because he has already declared us not guilty because of what Jesus took on our behalf. I remind you that judgment is coming and you will see the Son of Man. You will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. And whether you accept him now or not, uh, you're not going to have opportunity to do that when it's too late. It's appointed unto man to die once. Then the judgment you face is either the wrath of God or hearing the words not guilty because what Jesus has done for you. Our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice, that's the Savior who stood trial for you and for me that day. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, what can we say other than thank you? We, we can't even begin to describe or understand the horrors of your arrest and trial. Let alone the crucifixion. But we have come to understand this one thing. That you did it for us and we say thank you. I want to just ask if there's anybody here today, anybody watching me online. If you've never ever asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, won't you do that today? In your heart of hearts, won't you acknowledge that you need a Savior? Because if you think you're okay, mm, that's not going to cut it. If you've never prayed before, that's okay too. Just in your heart of hearts, won't you say, Jesus, thank you for standing trial for me. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can never match up to God's righteous requirements, but I know that you have. I understand that you've done that for me. And so this morning I accept everything that you've done for me with gratitude in my heart. Thank you for dying for me. From today I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And with my mouth I confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. My sinless, spotless lamb suffered in my place. Thank you. Lord, where there are those among us who are struggling with issues, struggling with maybe never fully relinquishing the right of their lives to you, those who perhaps struggle with these everyday issues that come across our path and choose to do things that shouldn't be done, Lord, forgive us. Thank you for the gift of your spirit in us 
the gift of your spirit in us who enables us and helps us and strengthens us to put to death those things that lead us to death. For that I give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name.